It was on April 18th in 1521 that Martin Luther uttered the statement that would really be the clarion call of the Protestant Reformation. At a heresy trial called the Diet of Worms, Luther had been pressed for several days to recant his theological works that he had written in the couple of years previous to 1521. He had been pressed, pressured, uh, under duress, under the threat of his very life, under the real possibility that he would lose his life at the stake. He was pressed to renounce those works. Finally, when the moment came for him to give his final answer to the Roman Catholic magisterium, he said these words, If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's Word, I neither can nor will retract anything For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. And at that moment, he raised his arm in the traditional sign of a knight declaring victory. Luther would not sacrifice his conscience. His conscience was bound to the Word of God, and that conscience was more valuable to him than his very life. Well, if you know anything about the Protestant Reformation, you know that it had a lot to do with the conscience. It was in many ways a recovery of the conscience. And in particular, the Reformers all believed that man should not be forced with respect to his conscience. So much so that then wherever the Reformation went, we read that democracy and liberty followed after. That emphasis on the conscience, and that conscience being captive exclusively to God, that emphasis then made its way into the next generation, the Puritans, who in many ways even refined the reformers under this, the, the understanding of the conscience and in many more ways, especially bringing it to bear on the life of godliness. The Puritans spoke much about the conscience. They emphasized the importance of the conscience because they believed that the conscience was that special mental organ through which God would press His law into the heart of the believer. It was that through which God would bring His Word to bear on life. It was that organ by which God's Word would be made real and practical in the life of a true believer. The Reformers and the Puritans after them all had a very high view of the conscience and placed a great deal of emphasis on it. And yet that understanding of the conscience, of course, is being eroded today. 
J.I. Packer in, in summarizing the changes that has, have happened since the Reformation and the era of Puritanism. He said this, but where do we find such an emphasis today? The frightening fact is that at the very present time, this note is scarcely ever struck. In Western society as a whole, conscience is in decay. We see that very vividly, in fact, today. On the one hand, you have Western governments seeking to bind and force the consciences with respect to belief and speech and practice in ways unseen since the time before the Reformation. There's a very real threat. We are living in a generation that is seeing the erosion of the freedom of conscience. But at the same time, you have Western secularism attacking the very concept of the conscience, eroding the foundation so that today the conscience is an enemy. It is a threat to self-esteem. Our pastor, Pastor John, has written this in his commentary on 2 Corinthians. He wrote this, Today's culture aggressively and systematically tries to silence the conscience. People have been taught to ignore any and all feeling of guilt that conscience produces, viewing them as harmful to their own self-esteem. They believe their problems stem not from their sin, but from their external factors beyond their control. Sin and guilt are viewed as psychological issues, not moral and spiritual ones. And perhaps if there's a motto that would summarize the spirit of our age, it's this, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. You hear it all the time. Of course, we hear it in our children, but we hear it from adults at at, at an incredible rate today. It's just not my fault. There is no attachment or responsibility that even adults today have to their own moral decisions. And so in, in light of this, it behooves us In this day and age, facing the attack of conscience from governments and facing the attack of conscience by the culture, it is important that we as Christians understand what the conscience is. And we've got a lot in store for us tonight, and I'm going to do my best to get through it, but I'll let you know already, we're going to be flying through this material and I may not be able to get through it all. But I want to start by recommending two books that I would say are very crucial in understanding the conscience. Books that are easily accessible and I highly recommend them to you. First is a little book about 120 pages, very easy to read by Andrew Nacelli and J.D. Crowley entitled Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ. Another book which I consider to be one of Pastor John's best books is The book called The Vanishing Conscience, Drawing the Line in a No-Fault, Guilt-Free World. In the hour that we have this evening, there's no way for me to go through all of the the teaching on the conscience and deal with all of the implications that flow out of that teaching. So I want to recommend these books to you as places to go for further study. But tonight I'll try my best in summarizing the issues that are at stake. Let's begin, first of all, with a biblical definition. What is the conscience? Let's define it. We have to start there. What is the conscience? Well, again, John MacArthur and and Richard Mayhew, they write 
this in answering that question. Quote, God has created everyone with a conscience. The faculty of moral evaluation concerning right and wrong, good and evil. Connected with self-awareness and rational capacity, the conscience alerts a person concerning the morality of his or her actions. The conscience functions like a divine moral referee. Failure to heed the conscience often leads to guilt or shame. Another theologian, Gary Meadows, writes this. He says the conscience is, quote, an aspect of self-awareness that produces the pain and or pleasure we feel as we reflect on the norms and values we recognize and apply. Conscience is not an outside voice. It is an inward capacity humans possess to critique themselves because the Creator provided this process as a means of moral restraint for His creation. Perhaps in a very simple way, Nacelli and Crowley define conscience as follows. The conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Your conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is either right or wrong. Now, we are taking this year to do this study in the mind, and so the question immediately is raised, how does conscience relate to the mind? Well, we could look at it this way. The, 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 the conscience is a faculty of the mind. It is a part of the mind's expression. The mind is responsible for many different things, cognition, self-awareness, etc. But the conscience is a part of the mind's processes. And so we could look at it this way. The conscience is a faculty of the mind that is specifically designed by God for the evaluation of matters pertaining to morality for matters pertaining to right versus wrong, for matters pertaining to duty or discretion. That's how we can understand the conscience. It is an organ, a faculty of the mind. We can even look at it a little bit more specifically in this way. The conscience really has two functions as it as it, as it occupies this role in our minds, first of all, it functions as an internal judge, almost as a courtroom with witnesses and, and with a, a judge and, and with an accuser and with a defendant. It, it really functions as a, a courtroom, but specifically as a judge, as it adjudicates, as it decides on the morality or immorality of past actions. You know what this is like. It's one of the things about the conscience. Might be difficult to define, but we all know we have one. We've all experienced its workings. And it works like this. The conscience is that faculty of the mind that makes us look back on an, an act, a thought, on, on some kind of speech, on some kind of behavior, and it pronounces a verdict on it either moral or immoral, right or wrong. But the conscience also has 
another function much like that, but a little bit different in terms of its, its activity. The, the conscience is also in many ways like an internal preacher. It exhorts us with respect to impending moral decisions. It not only looks back to what we've already done, but it also operates in, in how we consider decisions for the future. And so if there's something before you and you have a, a choice in that moment to make, do I do this or do, you, do I not? The conscience, when it is normally operating, will preach at you. This is wrong or this is right. Don't do it or do it. So, when we look at conscience, we we can consider it in that way, that it has those two functions in serving as this moral adjudicator in our lives, both with respect to past actions and with respect to impending decisions. Now, in defining the conscience, we can also look at even the, the, the etymology, the composition of the word, and this is fascinating And this is true for both the word in the English, where we get our English word conscience from, and the word in the Greek New Testament for conscience. It's made up of two parts, the word conscience. Con, which is Latin for with, and scientia, which means knowledge. And so when you put those two things together, con and scientia, the two Latin terms, You get conscience, and it has the idea of shared knowledge. Knowledge that is shared with. That's what conscience means. It's knowledge that is shared with. Now, theologians will debate exactly shared with whom. Whom is this knowledge shared with? Some would say, well, that word has come into being because it's knowledge that we share with ourselves because the conscience either preaches to us or renders verdicts to us. So perhaps there's that sharing that takes place internally. But I think there's a better way to understand this shared moral knowledge. It's moral knowledge that is shared with God. In fact, this is, this is knowledge that, this is that organ where that knowledge is shared by God. God's moral knowledge is shared with us through the conscience. Now, if you look at Romans chapter 2, you see this as the Apostle Paul describes even unbelievers. He says this in verses 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, that is the tablets, the writings, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Notice what Paul says in verse 15. They show the work of the law, God's moral code, written in their hearts. The conscience is that mechanism through which the morality of God, His holiness, is Righteousness is shared with those who have been made in God's image. Thus, the conscience was never created to be a a supreme, standalone, autonomous faculty of the mind. It was never created to to be the, the ultimate source of moral knowledge in and of itself. Rather, 
you could liken it, as J.I. Packer does, to the function of a mirror. He says this, the conscience is rather, quote, a mirror to catch the light of moral and spiritual truth that shines forth from God and to reflect it in concentrated focus upon our deeds, desires, goals, and choices. So in many ways, this is how we can look at the conscience. It is that special instrument that God has put within us that functions as a mirror, that receives the emanation of God's law, His revelation of Himself, even in His creation of us. And that conscience then directs the the direction of that revelation to the particular thought or deed or action to which God's revelation speaks. It is really a mirror. Now, as we'll see tonight, in many people, this mirror is severely damaged. But the way that God has created it is it for it to be this reflection. In response, one of the Puritans said this, David Dixon said, quote, Conscience is the understanding power of our souls, examining how matters do stand between God and us. Comparing His revealed will with our state, condition, and conduct in thoughts, words, or deeds, done or omitted, and passing judgment thereupon as the case requires. So that is a basic summary of how we can define the conscience. Now, what's helpful for us at this point is to look at the biblical evidence, to see how the Bible addresses the conscience, and to see from where these definitions have been taken. Well, it's interesting to note that in the Old Testament, we don't find a a specific Hebrew term that is devoted specifically to describe the conscience. Instead, we see that the function of the conscience is is really assumed in in other terms. So if you do a a word search of the Old Testament, at least if you do one that's that's a a literal word search, you're not going to find a word for conscience. But don't be confused. It doesn't mean that the Old Testament writers were oblivious to its its reality. Instead, we find it, especially in terms like the heart. As I as I indicated before, the, the conscience is a part of our mind. And, and so when the Hebrew writers would address the conscience, they would, they would address the heart. But we also find it in, in terms like discernment. Discernment between good and, and evil. For example, in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9, Solomon prays to the Lord saying, So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. That was Solomon's prayer at the start of his reign, and it it certainly indicates his awareness of this moral judgment. We we see it also in, in, in David's anguish. We see it after his own sin. We see it in a place like Psalm 32, verses 3 to 4, where where David writes this, When I kept silent about my sin, 
my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. That's the function of the conscience. It's the mirror that is there operating in David's life to receive the, the, the moral knowledge of God that spoke directly to his actions. And that mirror then focused that beam right on David's sin. And as a result, David, for months, until he confessed, was in torment. So we read of those kinds of illustrations from the Old Testament, but it's really the New Testament that gives us most of our most definitive teaching on the conscience. We find the term sunadesis, we find it about 30 times in the New Testament, and most of the time it's in the writings of the Apostle Paul. 20 times Paul mentions it in his own letters. 20 times, and then Luke records another two times in the book of Acts, where Paul preaches and he uses the word conscience in those contexts. And what I want to do is take a few of those. I want to take about five examples to glean some understandings of the conscience from these actual texts. Let's look back at the one we have already read, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. How do we understand the conscience from this text? As I, I read already, and we'll go back here, that there's some Vital information about the conscience in this text. Paul writes, For when the Gentiles do not have the law, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them. Paul is describing here what goes on in an unbeliever. The term Gentiles here is a reference to those who have not believed in in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's describing their depravity, and, and yet, even though they are depraved, they have been corrupted by original sin, they are, they are totally depraved. He said, nonetheless, this conscience is still operating even in the Gentiles, even in the pagans who have never come across a copy of the Old Testament Scriptures. There is this organ that is working within their minds. It's called the conscience. And it preaches to them. Sometimes it defends them. Sometimes it accuses them. And, and, and Paul says that is evidence of, of, of God's work in their lives. That is evidence of this judge condemning them. And he goes on to say in verse 16, it renders them without excuse. Because the conscience has convicted them, he says in verse 16, they will be judged. He says this, verse 16, on the day when according to my gospel, God will judge, notice what he says, the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. The the reasonings or the verdicts of the conscience are secret, often hidden from all others, but obviously known by the self. Those secret condemnations, that secret guilt, and Paul says, that will be used against the sinner. The moral deliberations of the unbeliever shows that he has a shared knowledge 
of the moral law of God. It's there. It's there. Yes, sin has corrupted it, and the unbeliever will seek to suppress that conscience, but nonetheless, that conscience remains and will be used in the life of the unbeliever as part of the ultimate condemnation that sends the unbeliever to hell. We find another example or usage, occurrence of the term conscience in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 7. Here Paul is no longer describing the unbelievers, but now he's describing those in the church. He says this in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 7, However, not all men have this knowledge. Now stop there, what's he referring to? Well, in the context of Romans or of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he is referring to the, the knowledge that there are no other gods and that food sacrificed to an idol means absolutely nothing. He says, not all men have this knowledge. Not all men have this conviction. Some are still bothered by the, the fact that the, the, the meat that they could buy in the marketplace was potentially corrupted by the fact that an hour or two earlier it had been used in some kind of temple sacrifice up the hill from the marketplace. And so Paul says this, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now. Some having come out of the pagan worship in those temples, some having or being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. What Paul is saying here is that for the believer, when he acts against his conscience, even if that conscience is ill-informed, even if that conscience is weak, even if that conscience doesn't have the facts straight, nonetheless, the conscience can be defiled. It is wrong, Paul says. It defiles the conscience. Another occurrence is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 9. Here, Paul is, is detailing for us the qualities of a deacon. And notice what he says about the conscience in this particular text. He says, deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond, fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. A clear conscience. Paul is emphasizing here that, that there is such a thing as a clear conscience. Sometimes we think that a conscience's only purpose is for condemnation, but as Paul indicates here, there is such a thing as a pure or clean conscience. But how that conscience is rendered pure or clean, Paul indicates as a conscience which operates according to what he calls the mystery of the faith. And the mystery of the faith is a, a, a reference to the revelation of biblical truth. So what he's saying here, as, as he describes the kind of men that you want serving at a, formal, at a formal level in the church, he's saying these men must have this clean conscience their conscience must be cleared or clean, not because they themselves have said so, but because it operates according to the standard 
of divine truth. And because it operates according to the standard of divine truth, and because the man is living according to that standard, the conscience then approves. The conscience then is clean. The the conscience then affirms and, and in a sense applauds. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Such a conscience, from this text, we see that such a conscience is not only possible, but it is actually required in the case of deacons. And again, we have this mistaken notion often that the Christian life is all about guilt-riddenness and that the conscience's only purpose is to condemn but Paul is showing through a text like this that, a con- that the conscience has another, another function as well, and that is to affirm. That is to show that there is, there is integrity, that a man lives according to the standard of his conscience. He doesn't defile it, and that conscience has been rightly informed and shaped and molded by the truth. There's another text to look at a little bit later in 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Here Paul refers to the conscience again, but here with respect to unbelievers once again. And he says this in verses 1 to 2, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. What Paul is teaching here, specifically in the case of unbelievers, is that the conscience can be ignored. It can be ignored. It can be suppressed. It can be defiled and transgressed so often that it ceases to have any real part in a person's life. Their conscience has become seared. And like the nerves and fingertips that have been exposed to fire, the conscience no longer registers any kind of impulse whatsoever. That's a seared conscience. And those consciences exist. There's another text, the final one that we'll look at before we look at some implications from all of this. is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, another very important text biblical testimony regarding the conscience. Here, the writer of Hebrews writes this, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, what this text testifies to is the the, the fact that the the alleviation of, of the conscience's guilt pangs is the great yearning of the soul. Again, we can all testify to this. No one likes the guilty pangs of the conscience. No one enjoys that. It is a little taste of hell in the present life. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, that the only way that that feeling that disastrous, that painful feeling of the conscience, that guilty verdict, the only way that that can be dealt with 
that it can be washed away is by the blood of Jesus Christ. By embracing the promise that He holds out, the promise that if you will believe in Him, that if you will acknowledge your own sin, your own need of a Savior, and believe that He died specifically to take away your sin and to give you His righteousness, and that by believing in His name, you can have life. That it's through that that the blood of Christ cleanses the guilty conscience. It is through that that the blood of Christ, the atonement of Christ, the cross of Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection can end that condemnation of your conscience when that conscience keeps saying to you, you deserve hell. Now we'll come back to this in just a few moments. But let's look now at how we can respond to all of this. Let's put together seven responses in light of the Bible's teaching of the conscience. As we continue to fill out our understanding of the Christian mind, let's now consider seven ramifications of the Bible's teaching on the conscience. Number one, recover your conscience and its necessity in your life. Recover your conscience and its necessity in your life. Although our culture is hell-bent on silencing and destroying the conscience, we as Christians must awaken it. We must enliven it by God's grace. Yes, the conscience is that thing that keeps us up at night after we have sinned. It is that warning system that keeps us from an action we know to be sin. And it is that that important defender of our own souls in the face of false accusations. And we need all of those things in our lives. We need them all the time. We need that activity of the conscience. And so what this means is that we need to unplug our ears. We need to give conscience a seat at the table, the the, the dominant seat at the table. And we need to listen to it. And we need to deal with the conscience's claims. In fact, I'll say this, men cultivate a tender conscience, one that is in constant operation. A tender conscience that operates so much that you're always aware of its activity. Now certainly there is in our day, in the free grace movement, this idea that again, the conscience is a relic of the past, the old life. And that the conscience has no part in the Christian life because we are only to ever experience and feel affirmation. It's not the biblical teaching. The conscience has been given to us for a reason. And it has been given to us as Christians to function in a way that would bring us like David to the point of anguish and confession. The conscience has been given to us so that we would flee from sin. So that we would see the way of escape and recognize that's the way that I need to go. The conscience has been given to prevent us from becoming man-pleasers. As we would bind our conscience to other things rather than God. And and simply become those who are constantly trying 
to please others. Pastor John puts it this way, conscience is to the soul what pain is to the body. We would like to avoid pain as much as possible, but at the same time we recognize that pain is a gift from God. If you don't have pain, you would destroy yourself. Pain is critical to physical preservation, and so the conscience is critical to spiritual preservation. Men, I need to ask you the question, are, is your conscience tender enough today that you are aware that you even have one? Think back over the last week. Can you pinpoint times when either there was this, this guilt that was pronounced on something you said or thought or did, or that there was this preacher in you that said, don't do this, do that. And if you look back over this last week and say, I, I can't remember a time, that is not a sign of spiritual health. You need to plead with God that He would awaken your conscience to make it sensitive so that you are always aware of its activity in your life. There is a hymn by Charles Wesley. I don't think you've ever sung it before. It is entitled, I Want a Principle Within. And, and this hymn reflects the same kind of sensitivity that the Puritans had toward the Christian conscience. Listen to the words of Charles Wesley as, as he prays for an active, tender conscience. He says this, I want a principle within, of jealous, godly fear, a sensibility of sin, a pain to feel it near. I want the first approach to feel of pride or fond desire to catch the wandering of my will and quench the kindling fire. From thee that I no more may stray, no more thy goodness grieve. Grant me the filial awe, I pray, the tender conscience give. Quick as the apple of an eye, O God, my conscience make. Awake my soul when sin is nigh, and keep it still awake. Almighty God of truth and love, to me thy power impart. The burden from my soul remove, the hardness from my heart. O may the least omission pain my reawakened soul, and drive me to that blood again which makes the wounded whole. I put that him in your notes. Go over it. Pray through it. That is a model, an example of the kind of prayers we need to have about our own conscience. You know, an interesting thing about the Puritans. In the early years, the Puritans were criticized as precisians. It was a term of derision. They were precisians. Because they were so concerned about, about applying God's will in all matters personal and ecclesiastical. Always wondering about what God's word has to say about this. And, and the critics of the Puritans would say, ah, there goes a precision. One day, one critic asked the Puritan pastor Richard Rogers why he was such a precision. And he responded this way and said, because I serve a precise God. Because God's 
moral revelation is so clear and so precise, it means our consciences must reflect that reality in all tenderness. Number two, obey your conscience until you can prove it wrong. Obey your conscience until you can prove it wrong. Indeed, your conscience may be oversensitive. It may be misinformed. You may feel guilt over things that actually are not sinful. But the surefire way to sear your conscience is to ignore it. It's kind of like that check engine light sign on your car. You know, it may be on for no reason, some faulty sensor. But you leave it on, so much so that you get to the point where whether it's on or not, you don't even notice. That's the surefire way to destroy your engine. Men, obey your conscience. The principle is very simple. To disobey your conscience is sin, regardless of whether your conscience is right or wrong. It may be wrong, but the last thing you want to do is disobey your conscience and fall into that habit of constantly ignoring it. Look at a few texts that speak to this. Romans 14 verse 14 says this, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, speaking of foods, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. He then goes on in verse 23 of Romans 14 to say this, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Paul gives us an absolute principle there, that if you have a moral decision in front of you, and your conscience is saying one thing, and yet you want to do something else. And, and so you've, you're in that moment of decision. You must obey the conscience. That is the principle. James 4 verse 17 says something very, very similar. When James writes this, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Your conscience is that, that judge. It is that preacher that is saying, do this. And for you to willingly and intentionally to disregard your conscience, that will be sin. And so sometimes the question is, in a counseling or discipleship situation, there's some kind of confession. And the confession is, well, you know, I did this. Is it, is it wrong or not? And the question that really is, is to precede that, or the answer, or the discussion, that is really to precede the, the most basic issue of whether it's right or wrong, is what did your conscience tell you before you did it? That's, that's the fundamental issue. And if, and if you sin against your conscience, it doesn't matter whether what you did is actually right or wrong. Your conscience said, do not do it. And you still went ahead and did it. Automatically, according to James, according to Paul, it's sin. Kevin DeYoung, in his book, The Hole in Our Holiness, states it this way. He says, quote, when we violate our sense of right and wrong, even if the action in itself is not sinful, we are guilty of sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, says Romans 14.23. That means if you do not believe what you are doing is acceptable, 
then it's not acceptable for you to do it. You must not ignore your conscience. Even if the Bible gives the green light, the red light in your conscience should not be transgressed. It's a very simple principle. This is one to live by. Do not transgress your conscience. That, of course, leads us to the next principle, number three. Calibrate your conscience to the correct standard. Remember, I I mentioned already that the conscience was never intended to be the ultimate authority. It is a mirror. It, It is a channel through which knowledge is shared, the knowledge of God, but it is not the ultimate source of morality. Instead, the conscience is to be calibrated according to the the right standard. Now, someone once said, the the trouble with this advice, follow your conscience, is that most people follow it like someone following a wheelbarrow. They direct it wherever they want it to go, and then they follow behind it. And then they say, I'm following my conscience. The issue is, it is to be calibrated correctly. The conscience was never created to be the ultimate standard of right and wrong. The conscience is not supreme. It is never infallible. It is never immutable. We are not the Lord of our conscience. Only Christ is. And so if you would liken the conscience to a compass, true north needs to be set according to Christ. Herman Bavinck, the Dutch theologian, described this principle this way. Quote, the supreme norm for our life is the divine law that may echo in our conscience as a voice that is dull and unclear and, and though from a distance. Something can be a sin before God that is nonetheless not against our conscience. Therefore, the subjective rule of our life must be brought increasingly into agreement with the objective one made known to us in God's revelation. With increasing measure, Christ must become the content of our conscience. He must make our conscience first genuinely free, independent of all external authority, and makes the law of our own personality correspond with God's holy will. Now, how do we do this? It begins, first of all, by acquiring an increasingly broad and increasingly accurate knowledge of what the Scriptures actually say. As you awaken your conscience, as you sensitize your conscience, it must be done hand in hand with this growing knowledge of, of what the Bible actually says. This is not about tuning your conscience to your own intuition and then thinking you're, you're especially pious because you've tuned it that way. That's not godliness. Godliness is the sensitive conscience that has been informed and is increasingly informed by what the Scriptures actually say. It then continues with the the minds informing the conscience of of God's will in all moral matters. So as you, you gain and acquire this broadening understanding of the Bible, 
as you deepen that understanding and inaccuracy of what the Bible actually teaches, then it becomes a responsibility to actually teach your conscience. Where the mind instructs the conscience about what God's Word says about matters of morality. You have to do that. You have to teach your conscience. Then it leads at that point to the cancellation of any rule of the conscience that has been embraced on the basis of intuition, that has been embraced on the basis of some kind of tradition, on some kind of community practice, some kind of false religious idea, or even some kind of of unsound biblical interpretation. You must rid yourself of of those rules and regulations that are man-made and have nothing to do with what the Scriptures actually teach. Because if you bind your conscience to what is not of God, you, that is not godliness. That, is, that will not lead to conformity to Christ. And then it leads, ultimately it aims at the adoption of the rules that God's Word does prescribe. God has made it clear what His will is on the fundamental issues of morality. And your will must adopt those And your conscience must embrace those rules and make it the standard by which it adjudicates your activities, your attitudes, your words, your plans. Nacelli and Crowley write this, Because conscience wants to make such stark pronouncements, it is of utmost importance that you align your personal conscience standards with what God considers right and wrong, not just with human opinion. Otherwise, your conscience will pronounce guilty or innocent verdicts on matters of mere opinion. Going back to Martin Luther, he said this, you should not believe your conscience and your feelings more than the word which the Lord who receives sinners preaches to you. Yes, you must listen to your conscience. And that was clear with with Luther making that statement at the threat of death, at the Diet of Worms, when he said, I can do no other, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. We want to be able to make those kinds of statements as we are faced at different moments in our lives, different moments every day with these moral decisions. We're in the face of temptation. A fork in the road. A decision needs to be made. We can do what Luther did, having a conscience that is captive to the Word of God, and we can state in the face of temptation, some invitation to immorality, we can state, my conscience is captive, and we can raise our arms like Luther did, declaring victory. Number four, protect your conscience against any violation. What are we talking about here? Well, this principle is this. There is an immense blessing that comes with a a clean conscience. There is a priceless joy that comes by living according to a conscience that is steadfast on God's Word and, and keeping your life according to that standard. Pastor John writes this in his book, Vanishing Conscience. The conscience is an important key to joy and victory in the Christian life. The benefits of a pure conscience comprise some of the greatest blessings of the Christian life. This is what needs to motivate us. And so, 
in those moments when you do walk along the path of the Christian life and, and you do sense victory over these temptations, you want to keep that going. And one of the key motivations to keep that going after your desire to please and glorify God is the fact that you want to put your head on the, on the pillow at the end of the day with a clean conscience. And how blessed sleep is when that's the case. Think of it. Those times when you violate your conscience and you get to the end of the day and you can't sleep. It robs you as it robbed David. But the alternative is true as well. That when you strive to, to, to walk in this manner, then life is so blessed. The, the circumstances may be difficult. Your car may break down. You may be diagnosed with an illness. You may have severe challenges in the world, but a clean conscience gives you a blessedness that surpasses all understanding. Aim for it and protect it. Keep in remembrance every time that temptation knocks on the door. No, I want to sleep tonight. I want to sleep knowing the smile of my Father is upon me. And that is worth more than this temporary deceitful pleasure. A clean conscience, of course, doesn't mean perfection doesn't mean that you've attained this, this level of, of holiness where there is no longer any sin. But what it does mean is that when, when, when that sin comes, there is quick and sincere confession. Not a, a delay like in David's case, but a quick confession. A true confession. A genuine confession of that sin. There is the repentance. There is the mindset that turns from that sin that recognizes the ugliness that it is. And then there's progress and practical steps taken to, to mortify that sin and, and, and in its place to cultivate Christ-likeness. Acts 24, verse 16, the Apostle Paul testifying to this blessedness says this, he says, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and men. And see the same thing in 1 Timothy 1.5 or 1 Peter 3.16, we are to protect our consciences. Number five, enjoy your conscience when it rightly vindicates. Again, as I said, many think the Christian life is, is a life of constant guilt-riddenness. Well, as I've said, the conscience has been given not only to condemn, it has been given also to commend. And so when your conscience is commending, you do enjoy those moments. You do enjoy that, that, that reality that, that you, have, you have done your part in living to the pleasure of your God. By His grace, by His enablement, certainly recognizing that it is not you who is ultimately responsible, but He who wills and works within you to accomplish this. The Puritan Joseph Hall said this, Happy is the man that can be acquitted by himself in private, by others in public, and by God in both. Number six, tend your conscience and not that of another. Tend your conscience and not that of another. There are few things that create as much division and strife between brothers in Christ so quickly 
And, and, and so sadly, as when brothers seek to lord over others' consciences, when they seek to take the responsibility of lordship and exercise that over another person. Now, this has always been a problem in the church. We can read of it in Romans chapter 14 or 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The Corinthians struggled with it. The Romans struggled with it. They had to learn how to respect the consciences of others. Now, now what Paul is speaking of there is not the, the fact of, of, of the, the revelation of God's moral will. He's talking about issues over which Scripture is silent. Issues about which Scripture doesn't speak. And there are a host of decisions we make every day that relate to those issues. And we must be careful not to try to to wrestle the lordship from Christ over another man's conscience. We can bind others' consciences only, only when we have a chapter and verse. Only when we can say, this is what the Word of God says. Only when we can show the direct connection to God's moral authority, to His moral revelation. And if we can't, we must be very, very careful to require obedience to our dictates. In fact, this is what led to the Reformation principle of the freedom of conscience. Going back to Herman Bavinck, he said this, because the conscience has received from God the authority that it has over us, and it is His law that addresses us in our conscience, which is independent of the will and power of all people, even from our own power and will. Therefore, the freedom of the conscience is a demand that cannot be refused. God alone, no human being, no matter who that might be, is the judge of the conscience. To subject it to the judgment of the state, of the church, of science, is tyranny. A presumption of law that belongs simply and only to God and a violation of what in human personality is the most noble, tender, and sacred. Finally, number seven. Liberate your conscience by the power of the gospel. You see, understand this. The conscience has the power and the ability to condemn or defend, but it never redeems. It does not have the power to save. And the reality of it is, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, our consciences will inevitably identify our true state, guilty. Guilty. And it can never atone for it. And if we listen only to the conscience, it will drive us mad. Even as Christians, even as those who experience growth in Christ's likeness, if we listen only to the the condemnation of the conscience, it will drive us mad. Calvin said, the torture of a bad conscience is the hell of a living soul. And we can even say this, if, if you're not in Christ, that 
pain of the conscience is a foreshadowing. The guilty conscience, that verdict that it is rendering on you, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, let me tell you tonight, that guilty conscience is just a foretaste of what is coming. And what is coming, an eternity in a merited eternal punishment called hell, the, the guilty conscience is only the foreshadowing, the foretaste of what is coming. And if you think your guilty conscience is bad, wait till then. The conscience will not save you. The conscience will only condemn you in the end. And that is why there's something so very important. As believers, we must not only listen to the conscience, but we must also continue to listen to the promises of the gospel. And it was Paul who wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, a very important principle that is to transcend anything that our conscience tells us. A very basic truth by which we live, and it is this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, we are to cultivate the conscience. Yes, it is to be operating in our lives to the extent that we feel its operation every day of our conscience existence. But there is a pronouncement, a verdict that transcends whatever the conscience will tell us. And it is this to which we must cling. Jesus has said, to all who come to me, to all who have come to me, there is now no condemnation. It has been finished, and you are now declared righteous. And you can rest in the reality, you can live the rest of this life on earth, having been justified by faith, so that God the Father, because of Christ the Son, and His work on the cross, looks at you and says, not guilty. Not guilty. Is that true of your life? If not, the conscience is telling you what's to come. But if it is, enjoy the wonderful promise of God and always remember that even as you deal with your fallible conscience. Let's thank the Lord for that wonderful promise. Father, we confess to you that we are more, more often guilty than not of ignoring this wonderful gift that you have given to us, trying to silence it, ignore it, smother it. And yet we pray in light of Scripture's teaching and in light of the joys that can be had through a robust, sensitive, tender conscience, we pray that you would enliven it in us so that we would come to know and experience what it means to, to walk according to our consciences, but not just a conscience that is, 
that is operating according to a false standard. Father, we pray that through the preaching and study of your word, through the discipleship and fellowship that we have with other believers, you would, you would transform our consciences so that they would reflect truly your character. And then that we would find the joy and the strength to walk accordingly. But ultimately, Father, we thank you that regardless of our experience here living under the conscience that you have given to us, the conscience that is being daily transformed, we thank you for the immutable verdict, the promise that will never change, the statement that has been made once and for all to us who have fled to your Son for refuge from the guilty conscience whose blood through the cross has cleansed us from sin, that now there is no condemnation. We thank You for that precious promise. We rest in it. And we carry it as our motto for the rest of our days. And we'll sing of its glory for eternity. We pray this in Christ's matchless name, Jesus. Amen.